Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Dupro. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. What's it like to become principal of the school that you went to as a student? What's it like to return full circle from the time where you were a novice and now you're an apprentice and then you get to lead that whole process of character apprenticeship that sits at the heart of today's learning for tomorrow's world? What happens when your understanding of voice becomes the community's articulation of voice Tammy Anderson knows all about this stuff. She's the Birrifree Principal of Briar Road Public School in the great state of New South Wales. She's grown up with a family on Durrell country in Airds in New South Wales. She's worked as a resource teacher. She's worked her way up through the system. She is a leading light of what it looks like to lead on the ground, on country. Tammy Anderson, I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Phil, I'm so excited to be with you again. How is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Look, it's cold, grey, wet and miserable. Everything that I'd expect from Melbourne these days and mm. I can't understand why you've been here all your life, mate. <laughs> I thought you were just talking about the locals in your suburb. Anyway, let's move on from this nonsense and get to our wonderful guest. It's great to have you on our show, Tammy. I'm going to ask you the very first question and it's the same question we ask all of our guests. Tell us about your story and how have you gotten to where you are today? Yeah, that's, that's probably the best question, right? How do you land where you land as an educator? And for me, my story starts a very long time ago, 1984, and walked in the doors of a, a primary school that statistically, by all accounts, you know, you will see somewhat students who come from a low socioeconomic background, large Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community, and a very poor disadvantaged community. So, I like to think that when I went to school, I didn't know any of that. And I still believe I don't. I think university told me that I was disadvantaged because certainly the way I was raised, I never felt any form of disadvantage at all. So, you know, walking in there 1984, I think it was my kindergarten teacher that it was the smell, it was the look, it was the touch, I think, of a classroom for me. And funnily enough, when we went full circle and she then became a supervisor of mine when I was beginning my journey into teaching, she came into my classroom one day, she said, this room looks really familiar. And uh, I said, yeah, I think it's a little bit like yours in kindergarten. But the in-between is that the impact that people had on me. And uh, I come from a family where my dad's one of 12, my mum's one of eight, I had a billion cousins and just the way that a lot of, of black families are. But for me, education wasn't something that we heavily focused on. It was an expectation that that we went to school until a period where something else probably came along. And I remember telling my dad at the end of year 12, I think I'm going to hit uni and so, you know, why would you want to do that? And I thought, I don't know, I'll probably just give it a go, you know, see see what falls. And just along the way, you know, picking up people who believed in me, people who, who had those hard conversations sometimes about Tammy, you know, you can do it. 
you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to think about this, you need to think about that. I'm very thankful for those people. Sometimes if if they're not in your home for whatever reason, workplaces and schools are so critical to have conversations like that. And just one little conversation for me from a year 12 teacher, she said, you know, I think you could be a teacher. And I, I thought, oh, you know, maybe, maybe not. She said, this is how you do it. And yeah, that's how I went away really to study. And as soon as I was done at uni, I was straight back to my community. The first place and the only place I wanted to teach was Briar Road, which is where I went. And some, you know, 21 years later, I've had a lot of different experiences, but have really uh, honed the craft as a teacher through that space. So tell us a little bit more around the moment you made that decision then to go to university and study to join the greatest vocation in the world, teaching. And you then finish and you're about to start in a classroom. What was dad's response then? Yeah, coming home to my own community, I think, was the greatest sense of pride. You know, that service. The profession is about service, but there's something else in it when it's your own people, your own school community, the people that have raised you. So there's a great sense of pride. I remember uh, one of the challenges that that community had initially, they were like, well, you know, Tam, are you like a real teacher or you know, just trying to distinguish whether I was a school learning support officer who was so vital, but they'd only ever seen Aboriginal people from our community in those roles. Mm -hmm. And so I was the first kind of teacher to go back to our school as a appointed Aboriginal teacher to the school. So for me, fundamentally, it was probably one of the most proudest moments just in that classroom teacher appointment. So, So tell me a little bit more about that then, around people's perception that Indigenous Australians who have aspired to work in education, are sitting in a very vital role of learning support. Let's not undersell its value because it's really crucial and they often form the quality relationships that are needed to help young people really succeed, particularly those who we know have got diagnosis of all types of challenges in their life. But you've entered into it as the classroom teacher and you've now navigated through your career and now are a principal in that space. How does that now land with members of your community and also non-Indigenous Australians? Yeah, I have to be honest, when I had gone away and worked on my leadership skills and abilities and and had, you know, I'd worked my way through Briar Road as a, as a middle leader and had worked with some phenomenal, as you talked about, school learning support officers who were our own people. There's always this really great sense of pride and push for me to become a leader in the school from community, to be really honest, rather than from me. And I think that that was probably a critical point because they, I think that people want to see our people in those positions. It's something that we aspire to in our communities and in many different places in society. So I certainly felt good pressure, if I can, good pressure around, you know, getting into that space. And what, what I knew that my community knew is that I'd have an opportunity to create shape and really give some really good direction to the school community and, in a sense, to marginalised groups within the community because I had a different lens every time I walked in the site and one that was really close to the ground. I work with some phenomenal colleagues who have lenses close to the ground, but, you know, living in the community and being from the community, it just gave me quite a, a unique perspective. And I have to tell you, when I became principal, my local Aboriginal Medical Service sent me letters of congratulations and And my community were just rejoicing that local girl, local community girl kind of made it to the role of principal. But for me, I was very always honoured and continue to be honoured that people trust me to make these big decisions for their kids, you know. And uh, 
for me, being in the role of principalship in the initial appointment phase, I was probably met with a two or three times with some solid pushback from non-Aboriginal families about what that could look like. And, you know, it's a big case for me of you don't know what you don't know and sometimes change scares people. You know, we see it in our profession and in the world a lot. And those conversations had to be had with people. Sometimes the commentary wasn't framed in the way that I want for a successful school community. And if we're going to be successful, that means every kid. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not Aboriginal kids and it's not other groups of children. It's all of us together. So they, they were some hard conversations straight out the gate, which I think, to be honest, gave me a lot of shape for my leadership and having them in a way that ultimately led to having strong, constructive relationships with families that probably were a little bit opposed to my appointment. Tammy, do you enjoy being a leader? Do I enjoy it? Yeah, um, every day I enjoy it if I'm with kids. You know, the only time I find myself going, oh, I think I want to go back to classroom teaching is when I sometimes the work takes me away. You know, sometimes you lock down for whatever it might be, you know, those big meetings that you can't avoid. And I, I do try and kind of work them around so I, I I get that opportunity. But, you know, playing soccer at lunchtime or just walking around and checking in on kids is the part that I enjoy the most. Working with the community, you know, the admin side, I don't super love, but it's part and parcel of the job. But impact on children and working with solid operators who are game changers, they are the game changers. I just get the pleasure of, of leading them around on the pitch every day. Uh, that feels like what we do in the podcast, my friend. We're just, it's not about us, it's about people like you who, do, who are out there doing the thing. I wonder, as you're doing your leadership practice, what is the same? And what is different about a school with a large number of students who come from a First Nations background? Yeah, that's something we're really kind of diving into at the moment. You know, what makes First Nations leadership look, feel different to anyone else's? I don't know what anyone else's looks and feels like, obviously, because I've never had that lens on. But when I talk to colleagues and we we, we kind of throw around what we do and I've got some brilliant operators around me all the time, one of the things that they will do is they'll, you know, sometimes if they're up against something they're not quite sure about, and you give me a call and we'll have a chat. And I think one of the things that I do is that my lens is on all the time. Like my lens doesn't come off when it's not NAIDOC week and my lens is on when I'm staffing the school. I'm looking at where our people are present. What are the the participation rates of our community? As much as I'm looking at all community, I'm always drawn to where my people sit. Where are they in the conversations? Where are they present? The same way when we dive into curriculum, you know, we're looking at curriculum reform agenda in New South Wales, which has been great. But at the same time, I'm really interested in the improvements to perspectives, because if we're going to build belonging for our kids, I want to make sure that it's present. And where it's not, then I have the onus is on me to go away and make sure that I'm providing space in my school to make sure we can dive in a bit. And I think that that possibly is part of the difference. I think the other bit is in my everyday, I'm culturally responsive because that's what I live and breathe each and every day. So whether it's a conversation that I'm having with a community member, uh, whether it's an upcoming interaction or some decisions that are being made, my cultural responsiveness is always with me. You know, it's part of me, not something that I bring to school um, in a backpack each day. Yeah, so it's a fully integrated, holistic kind of thing. In your leadership, there has to be an acknowledgement and a dealing with the reality that for many of your students, their backpack that they carry around with them is bigger and contains some heavier rocks 
than a whole bunch of other students and that those rocks were put there by other people, other conditions, other systems and so on. How do you deal with that? You can't hide this stuff and you can't pretend it's not happening, but at the same time, it's not some little fellow's fault that the backpack's bigger and heavier, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I see a big part of my responsibility that you can't necessarily unpack someone's bag, but what you need to do is make it lighter throughout the day. And I see the people that can lighten loads are being the teachers, the the support staff that are around children that, yes, while that bag might have to come to school and sometimes it might have to go home, I see throughout the day that we provide a space where that bag can be put down, that bag can be lightened, you know, We look at things like challenging cultural bias in the classroom and what teachers bring each and every day to the classroom, sometimes unknowingly, and how that they need to adjust their teaching to ensure that each student has full access to what's going on in the classroom. When I think about our school, I need to make sure that there's an appropriate use of school resourcing to make sure that kids, when that bag's a little bit heavier, that we can lighten it while they're there, Uh, and and even times that there's after school. So I see a great deal of the work work being in the way that people have, well, the people who have responsibility for our smallest and then even more so our most vulnerable kids, the way that they respond to those children each and every day in their classrooms. I want to pursue this conversation a little bit further and and perhaps give our listeners some uh, practical ways in which they can do lots of the things that you're talking about. When I was reading an article in preparation of today's interview with you, I was reading it from Reconciliation Australia and there was a quote in there where you said, honouring culture in learning allows kids the space to develop a strong sense of belonging. I love that quote, by the way. I love that quote because Phil and I will often talk about the notion of voice, but our interpretation of voice is that it's the space for people to express their identity and create a deep sense of belonging. And we have that responsibility within our schools to foster that. You've spoken a little around your leadership when it comes to a culturally kind of responsive school. And you've given just some examples just then about how you challenged your staff to be conscious in the classroom as well. What does then a culturally responsible classroom look like each day for every child in practice? Yeah, that's a really great question, Adriana. And I suppose for us, I can talk from our context. One of the things that we've done is is challenge the depth and breadth to which we can take things. We're to teach from the textbooks and the syllabus alone. There's spaces that we're not going to be able to explore. So in terms of For me, honouring culture in the classroom is about children being seen, that they are valued in the space, they know their worth and they know that you're not there in the sense of giving them anything that is tokenistic and not going to be delivered in a way that can make them grow as cultured individuals. So for me, we've really done a lot of work around taking community resourcing, bringing it right into our school with community members, so drawing on people and then placing that as a part of our curriculum. And that's quite deep work. It can probably seem very superficial sometimes if you just talk about a perspective because we can take that out of a syllabus. But what we try and do is really deepen up the level of cultural experiences that are happening in classrooms. And I've found when we talk about reconciliation and truth, that has done a great deal of work for all kids at our school. Yeah. At our, kids, our kids don't see this as being Aboriginal specific or Torres Strait Islander specific or, or 
even Durrell specific, which is where we are on country here, this has worked for all Australians. And so to be about what we do in the classroom in terms of curriculum delivery. But one of the other things that I see, and I talked about it a little bit, is really working with teaching staff on their professional development and journey and really pushing around the edges on hard conversations with staff. What way did you grow up? What did you grow up with in terms of a bias? And how do we make sure that we don't bring that into the space and create a space that might feel a little unsafe in terms of cultural safety? We do and spend a lot of time on developing the teachers. They are the leaders in that classroom. And when teachers are leading well in classrooms, students are performing and leading well as well. So for us, it has a lot of prongs. It probably sounds like I'm just dipping my toe in and I probably am, to be quite honest. But I think it does require like a, a multifaceted approach mm-hmm. to really do that heavy lifting that needs to happen. What, what I'm really hearing in a, in a really pronounced way is that we are having a privilege today, Phil and I, to talk with a leader that places people at the centre of their community. And it's not just a human-centred approach, it's their stories that bring value to everything. Yeah, for me, as a young girl, when you grow up in a, quite a disadvantaged school community, historically our school was probably seen and labelled as hard to staff, quite challenging. And so we would turn over staff pretty regularly, both when I was young and when I was a beginning teacher. And one of the things that I truly believe in is that notion of leaving a community better than you found it. And that's not to say I've got all the answers, but I know that community pretty well. It's one of my privileged points in my professional life that I've been able to say and and be in that position. But that notion that as a teacher, you could move on, you probably may move on, but you have to remember that this is... This is our kids and that's their community. Yeah. I'm going to ask you two quick questions before I'm going to get Phil to jump in here and really turn the conversation to Indigenous Voice to Parliament because we're really interested in your perspective, of course, in this really important space and really important conversation that the nation is currently having. My, My first question of the two, one is you've just shared with us the responsibility of a leader who understands stewardship and how you continue to contribute through service leadership to be a steward, not only for today, not only for yesterday, but of course, for tomorrow. I'm interested in who influenced you in your learning journey around that construct of stewardship. And my second part to that question is, you have done extraordinary work within your community to develop your people, particularly the adults in that community to be leaders. What advice would you then give to leaders outside of your community on how they could be responsible citizens in this stewardship piece as well. So first with the influence and then the advice. Yeah, the influence one is a really kind of beautiful one for me, to be quite honest. I, as a young girl, the only black face I saw in my school in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people was our AEO. And she was an Aboriginal education officer. And in the, the late 80s, they were the first, I think, identified appointment in New South Wales government schools. And so I remember looking at her just being in awe that someone from our community was working in the school. And what I didn't think about as a kid was in the late 80s into the 90s, the the, the political arena of Australia and education as a whole would have probably required her to do a lot of hard conversations and walking some hard journeys in order to, to get things happening for us kids. And I, I realised that obviously later in 
life, but she was very influential to me. She kind of gave space to that notion that you can be what you can see and that obviously that other notion of you can't be what you can't see. So she she certainly gave a space for me to see Aboriginal people in schools. And while she wasn't a teacher, I watched the way that she was with kids and the way that she held herself amongst staff and people who really respected her for her intellect, her standing in the community because that's something that we bring as Aboriginal people when we come into schools. We bring the community with us in many instances and and sometimes that can be a little bit of a challenge to navigate those white and black spaces, if you will, and finding the space where everyone can be successful. So for me, watching her, I was only a young girl and I went back and did work experience with her when I was 16 and all I wanted to be was an AEO at the school and she actually said to me, you should be a teacher too because look what all the teachers here do. So, and then lo and behold, years later, she became my mother-in-law. So she's still in (laughs) I don't know if she had had that pegged in 1984, but she certainly was probably fairly influential. Well, well, I'm loving that. I'm loving that you're keeping it all in the community. That's a great thing. (laughs) And later on, there were lots of influential educators, you know, uh, mentors who I had along the way who kind of really showed me that bravery is required in leadership and that well thought out responses are important, but also just that belief that being brave will also do great things is something that's really kind of stayed with me through some of the mentors that I've had. So that's that influence kind of space. What was the second bit, Adriana? The second part of my question really was around you've had this great influence on your current community and you continue to, and I'm just quite taken aback by the depth of your thinking and how measured you are in your response, that your composure is really, really impressive as a leader. And I love that you mentioned the word bravery or being brave. And it actually requires us to be compassionate, doesn't it? It requires us to be curious. It requires us to be courageous and it requires us to be people of conviction. So the second part of my question then comes a bit around that. How can we help other leaders within education to lean into this space of brave when it comes to becoming responsible citizens that value diversity as a strength in our community and run towards it as opposed to away from it? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think that if you haven't dipped your toe in and you are a current leader, I suppose I would say that there needs to be some work within yourself about why you haven't because I find it's that understanding why I have not is pretty much, I think, the break point when you can move forward. And, you know, I'm again, like I was talking about with staff, really challenging what your cultural bias is, how, what is holding you back from moving forward. So because what I see as a system, and I could only speak from New South Wales, is as leaders we get this amazing opportunity to explore with great depth Aboriginal education. I'm not quite sure what, it, what our other jurisdictions look like, but for us in New South Wales we do get this opportunity. We have a lot of professional learning both coming out from our organisation and also there's a lot of stuff in the broader kind of education community. I think that being able to work on yourself and understand why I don't move into the space is first and foremost. And then secondly, I suppose it does harp a little bit back to being brave about what you don't know. And if you focus so hard on what you don't know, you really aren't going to move forward. You know, I'm I'm a big believer that as educators, we've got a, a big responsibility to explore and learn more about anything we don't know about. And it's interesting because this 
space. I find I've met some wonderful colleagues who fear getting this wrong. I've never met anyone who is just like, I don't want to do it, Tammy, because I don't want to. But it's more around the fear of offence. And what we face, though, is the the fear for me as a community member and as a leader of doing nothing because we may cause offence. And I think with the right consultation and if you pride yourself on putting people first and having those conversations in communities or connecting with amazing organisations that are out there, we work really heavily with places like Stronger Smarter to grow our space. And there's a lot of them on and around our communities. So for me, it's about doing uh, due diligence around correct information but also being brave and stepping into the space is something that I think that people would hold them in good stead. Thank you. Tammy, talking of that desire to step out of a place of fear and into a place of openness, let's turn our attention to the voice to parliament, shall we? Yes. For many Australians, it seems to offer the hope of a promise and that if we get reforms right, Not only is it going to benefit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but it will add to our shared sense of identity and nationhood. It will do something for the Commonwealth in that old sense of that word of something we share. And it's a little bit like the way that you've been talking about your school as a whole, that, that there's a social contract in play here and that it's not just about closing a gap or righting a wrong, although it should do both of those things. It's something that adds to the dignity and worth of all. What would a constitutional voice to parliament mean for you personally? For me personally, I think that it would mean that I don't have to wait for the right political party to start to make decisions that are about our people and from our people. And I think for the history of this country, decisions about our people happen by government of the day. And it swings depending on who's in power. And so at the end of that, if we think when I'm very focused on people, at the end of the day, the people on the ground who policy most affects are really concerned about the party as such. It's about who's making the decisions. And it's never been our people making decisions for us around policy. It has been everyone else doing that. So for me, it would give me some quality assurance that people who have lived experiences as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are making those decisions and are, are working in government to assure that our needs, um, our the recognition of our, our voice is happening. If we're really to improve the lives of our people, it needs to be by our own people. It's a really interesting point that you make around the notion of transforming all of this into a space which is free of party political agendas. We have a a situation in our country at the moment where one political party seems to be the progressive party in this space and another party or group of parties perhaps are more reticent, although that's probably at a federal level, certainly not at a state level because all the state level premiers have backed voice to parliament regardless Mm -hmm. of political party. But what I think a lot of us, so this is the old history teacher in me about to come out now, (laughs) Tammy, just excuse me, but what people need to understand is that the voices in the party that seems to be most progressive now at different points in time in our history have actually been the voices that were least progressive and most forthright in their expression of a perspective that can only be called racist around there. So it's that understanding that that politics is the space of pushing an agenda. This isn't about an agenda. This is about 
enshrining a permanent structure that gives voice to those people who in our society who habitually and consistently and structurally their voices aren't hurt and have not been hurt so this is part of this sort of continuing song line that's been sung for over 3240 years now and it gives us an opportunity as a nation to do that at the same time it's got to have practical benefits um, because, you know, there's a whole bunch of people from all sides of politics at the moment who are saying it's all well and good having a voice, but it's got to deliver tangible benefits. How would an Indigenous voice to parliament, do you think, shift this delivery of benefit to Australians who are not receiving their due benefits currently? Yeah, it's such a big question when we we are so close to potentially getting this to be a real living feature in in terms of our country and in terms of that federal space. For me, I would like to see that our people are able to make decisions across the big spaces where our people have been let down for long periods of time in the spaces of education, health. I see us having, you know, an opportunity to really inform things like we are, I have to say, like, you know, when we looked at curriculum reform, Aboriginal people are present, we're invited to the table. However, one of the things that I would really love to see us move in a space where we We're determining the direction first and foremost about what's important in terms of of education for our children and then bringing in the people that need to be in the room. We know that historically for us, it's an invitation to the table and uh, I'd like to see the reversal of that. And so when I'm looking at what it could practically look like on the ground, just that self-determining about what education looks like. We still in our spaces are making education work for us and I work with some fantastic people who make that happen each and every day but there is still a lot of work that we need to do in honouring our lived experiences, honouring our knowledge before our kids even start school. So really I'm excited about the possibility of not only just having a voice but creating some shape to whether they're advisory groups, whether they're, you know, take on a different form but really come from a first nation's lens and so when we started the conversation we talked about the lens that I lead with I would love to see that lens of leadership across everything that's happening for our people in this country I think that that can and and should only happen with first nations people. Can I just ask a question then in relation to all that all granted all given okay so I'm, I'm with you on this one I'm interested in teasing out this reciprocity around this because so much of what you're saying suggests that in elevating First Nations people to the same status as other people in our country, which is the the correction of the historical wrong as best as is possible, it can't undo trauma that's been experienced, but it can at least establish a fair platform to move forward. What's something in the character of Indigenous or First Nations leadership that all Australians can benefit from? I think truth-telling. We have a lived experience as Aboriginal people and we don't get the opportunity, not that I think we'd ever take it to park that lived experience when we walk in a non-Aboriginal world, when we walk in the white world, 
we don't park that experience. And even most well-meaning people, uh, if you haven't had that lived experience, it's it's quite a, a difference. And so for me, the ability to be able to tell the truth comes very, very naturally because I know what it is. I've I've seen it in my families. I've seen statistics as they exist at a national level. I've seen them, whether it's incarceration, whether it's health, you know, all of those things happen through lived experience of Aboriginal people. And so I believe it's very easy for me to tell the truth and not come from a spot of wanting you to take blame for what's happening, but merely to make sure that you know that this is actually happening in our communities and happening on a scale that that has been unacceptable and is unacceptable. And so being able to tell that truth and being honoured in the space that is truth allows, I suppose, that work to move forward both with Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. It goes to the heart of reconciliation, but I honestly think in terms of of leadership, there's a lot of other skill sets that go with being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders and, you know, ability to kind of bring forward cultural values and protocols into spaces where they might not have existed previously. And I think in our communities uh, we do a very, very good job at at honouring and upholding processes for respect and strong conversations to progress what we need. But I, I I certainly feel like truth-telling comes to the fore when, when you ask that question. Thank you very much for your response there around what is the character trait or character traits that we gain from First Nations people when it comes to leadership. Truth-telling doesn't come easy to people. No, you re- it requires a strength. You yeah. Talk about the things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders and community members share in forums with mostly the view to improve come from very personal spaces. And I think with truth-telling comes a great sense of vulnerability and mm. vulnerability doesn't come easy to people. Well, and- no, because in many ways, in particularly in Western culture, leaders have been hardwired to wear armour. Leaders yeah. uh, need to be this kind of very stereotypical perspective of what strength looks like and, and, and it has to be devoid of any fragility. It has to be devoid of any vulnerability. But that's why I, I feel that your response has some real majesty to it because it's ultimately allowing us to peel back the layers and enter into a, a yarning circle where everyone in that space is prepared to show up. Yeah. You, you know, you look at the things that have happened not just to our people but with our people, whether it's, you know, royal commissions or people going into communities and placing things up on social media, you know, people who are sharing their stories, whether they're famous Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people or their families just here in my community, the, the strength that goes with telling your story and the stories are shared with the belief that somehow sharing my story will help with the broader story. It's that notion of service to our people. I've yet to meet anyone who's just out there telling the story for no good reason. Yeah. Um, I agree that vulnerability is in many circles seen as a weakness, but the vulnerability that I see in our community leads me to think that there's strength and I see that strength in the vulnerability. Okay. I've got two questions to wrap this up before I then hand it over to my esteemed colleague to uh, thank you for being on our show. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and, and, and learning from you and with you today. So thank you. My first question is, for me, the power in the word permission is granting oneself the formal kind of consent to do something, right? It's kind of, for me, permission is about the necessary yes towards a real movement, a purposeful action, 
and as you used before, self-actualization, you know, self-determination. Can you share with our listeners a time in your career where you didn't wait for permission and you simply did something? Oh, there's probably a few that come to mind and I'm wondering when whether they come to mind whether subconsciously I, I knew it was the right thing to do and the people who backed me, whether they're supervisors or, you know, your staff, whether they're, you know, that they've kind of got you. When you build a team that you trust and that you hold uh, space for in a really, I suppose, purposeful and safe way, you feel a lot safer. So I probably, to be honest, I've dived into a few things that for the purpose of what is right, some of them have included really kind of pushing and pulling on the depth to where we'll go in terms of Aboriginal perspectives. If we, again, if we lead just with what's in front of us in text and, and, the, and the syllabus documentation, we can be really limited into in what we provide to children. I think that we have in our school, we have so many lived experiences of Aboriginal people. You know, we've got 12 Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people on our staff, which is quite large for the population of our school. And so making sure that it's more than just a small piece of a perspective that we really dive into it. Things like having a, a community member who was very anti-teaching language. You know, the conversation was, I appreciate that you have an opinion on that. However, you know, within our school and with our localised context, we've decided that this is appropriate for us and we're going to dive into that space. Sometimes you, you make those decisions thinking, okay, there's going to be something in the back about this. But all in all, I think that sometimes people just want to see what your reaction is. And I think that the times that I've stood up, thankfully, they've landed more than they haven't. And at times, though, I think that that can really take it out of you that you have to sometimes have these conversations that as a professional, you think, man, I never thought I'd have a conversation like that about whether mm. a parent thought that there was too much, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander stuff happening at a school because you romanticise what a school like that can look like and you think, oh, everyone will buy into this. But as leaders, we know that that's not always the case. But I think being brave to walk through that and showing your staff, I think I was led by someone once who took on she was a non-Aboriginal principal and I, I watched her take on a really racist comment quite strongly and I thought, wow, there she is, like that's what an ally looks like. I was standing there, she could have waited for my response, but, you know, she took it on. She took on writing that wrong and so I feel like I've got, I've got a bit of that work to do too in honour of her. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. My final question is one around hope and our listeners uh, will already know that that what we do at Game Change is we have a very firm conviction that as educators, we're brokers of hope in the lives of self, place and the others. Really briefly, what's your sense of hope for our collective future? I hope that one day we don't have to have a conversation about Aboriginal education and its place. I hope that it becomes so embedded in our work that there is no conversation. It's happening in each and every school in a way that is community focus that is built on a high expectation that all of our children will and can achieve. And then I hope that in, in 30 years from now, the children that we're raising in our classrooms with families become those change makers who don't come out and say things that incite views that aren't either true or appropriate for us to have in this country. 
that there is space for everyone. And, and first and foremost, I think that it's not beyond this next generation to place Aboriginal education and First Nations people rightly where they belong in the story of the country. And so I hope that through the work that I do with teachers that I do with our school community, that those people in my school will go on to other schools when they become leaders in their own right and start the continuation of that ball rolling. Tammy, the current generation, who are the future adults and citizens of this country, of course, have that capacity to do that. But they need, they need leadership and they need leadership that offers hope, that offers practical solutions, that offers a reasonable and measured voice, not a shrill, politicised series of arguments that are only going to alienate and polemicise and drive people further apart. It's voices like yours that are going to help bring our communities together, are going to help join up the song lines and help us all take that big step forward. And we're so grateful to you for your time today and for your willingness to share all that amazing wisdom and expertise and heart with us. So bravo to you and thank you for being on Game Changers today. Can I just say before I go, though, Phil and Adriano, as an Aboriginal educator, to be asked to first and foremost do a podcast on something that's so passionate to me but be provided a platform by two men who are not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander is an honour. And I think that true allyship is where you've got space that providing it for voice for those who might not have it in terms of that platform. So I just, I want to sincerely say thank you for the honour of being here today. And you you guys truly are the game changers. So thank you. Oh, yeah, that's, that's far too kind to Yeah, the honour's all ours and it's been an absolute privilege. And your response to the question I asked a moment ago about hope, if we can ensure that Indigenous knowledge and education is is a mainstay like literacy and numeracy, then I think we've then achieved something quite remarkable. But, you know, your voice and the voice of your people and those who continue to stand up alongside of Black Australians, that gives us hope. But thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.